Today's intro describes the rape of a young girl and could be troubling and or triggering for some listeners. I've been thinking, he says, traces a finger over my mother's picture, pauses so long I forget about him and go back to my book. Maybe we ain't related after all. I laugh without looking at him, but then he's in front of me, closer and closer, his lips sudden, warm on mine. It takes my breath clear out. The sun comes in under the door. It comes in overhead through the skylight Grandpa Jackie put in years before. The skylight used to leak when it rained, but it doesn't rain anymore. There's other girls in peaches, I say. I cover my hot cheeks with my hand. I face the door. Why can't you make it with them? How do you like your life, Lacey May? Anyone really ever care for you? I don't answer him, but I know. He straddles me, his knees a hard press, my dress goes up, his knees pin. I watch my own self crawl the walls, leave through a crack in the wood slats. What's left of me tries to sit up, but there's not going to be any of that. In the romances, men hold women in soft caresses. They are hard with muscle, but their insides are made of sweet taffy. The men voice their love feelings loud. The women dip their heads back, necks, arced and pale. They love the love and it showers them. They return from the love cleaner than before and wear it like aura, a pastel rainbow above soft curls. Me, I had worn white last year when I turned 13 in a church preservation ceremony where the other girls married their daddies, but I had no daddy to marry so I married God alone. And now this, pinch and push, my lower back scraping against the dirt floor. I think I must not be married to God anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and you're listening to 42 Minutes, a podcast about meeting from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, December 3rd, 2018, and today for 42 Minutes, we'll consider what's keeping her down with the writer Chelsea Beaker. Beaker is the... Did I get the last name right? You did. Good job. (laughs) Beaker is the recipient of the 2018 Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award and the author of two forthcoming books, the novel Godshot and the story collection Cowboys and Angels. Her writing has been published in Granta, McSweeney's, Catapult, Joyland, and others. She currently lives in California where she teaches writing and is at work on a narrative nonfiction project. More information about her can be found at her website, chelseabeaker.com. I'm very pleased to have discovered her writing in McSweeney's number 53 this past fall and am honored to have her join me here tonight. How are you doing, Chelsea? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be having this conversation, so thank you. You bet. Okay, so we're going to start in... Uh, we're going to just start right here with, so this podcast does a seasonal book club and it's, it's fun. It just kind of roots us into a book for a time. And I have some friends and colleagues that like to read and discuss works. And we ended up doing a work by Nabokov for the fall book, Ada or Ardor, which is maybe the last book book that he published and I'd never read Nabokov before but most people who have have read Lolita Mm -hmm. and so (laughs) it was a really it's it's been a really interesting discussion trying to parse him 
as an artist and then considering his subject matter in a culture that has clearly shifted. And I'm wondering, have you ever read Lolita? Um, I have actually, yeah. Yeah, I read it a couple of years ago. And what did you make of it? I mean, I was really taken by it. I think there is some inherent complications, of course, when we consider the facts of the story he's laying out. Um, you know, this older man pursuing this younger girl. But as a piece of fiction, I was intrigued by the voice and intrigued by being let into this sort of um, perspective that normally we don't get this, that viewpoint. So I guess on an art level, it was very intriguing to me. And then, you know, as a person, of course, it's horrifying to imagine this young child being pursued by an older man. So I guess I feel, you know, those two ways about it. But I think art is meant to kind of um, disturb and provoke and, and force us to ask questions about what we think of things. So it did all of those things for me. Um, and but so, yeah, I don't know. What did you think of it? Well, <laughs> like I said, we read a different book. It was called Ada. And in that book, it was a 12-year-old mm -hmm. girl, but a 14-year-old boy. And so in learning about him, he definitely had some kind of experience when he was a young, youngish person where, mm -hmm. you know, it, that haunted him his whole life because I think he wrote this story a number of times. The Lolita version is quite different than the what we ended up reading in, in Ada. But mm -hmm. then as just because we were so – his career is interesting, um, we decided to have another discussion about the Stanley Kubrick film – and um, have you seen that? I think so. It's been a long time, though. But I, I know that I've seen a film adaptation of Lolita. Well, and so that's what's so interesting. So the film adaptation came out in 1962. But then I think they remade it in 1997 with Jeremy Irons. You know, so like this is a story mm. that for whatever reason has captivated people. And I don't know that I understand... I don't know that I understand it is the thing. Mm -hmm. Like uh, maybe the movie was telling a story about this young girl that's being exploited by these different cultural forces and that there is. Yeah. Yeah. But it, I don't know what the what Nabokov was doing in the book. Wasn't it inspired by a real life situation? I should know more about it, but. I thought it was inspired by an actual girl that he had kind of read about and researched. Do you know anything about that? I, there was a book that came out this year called The Real Lolita. And um, mm -hmm. I, th I think there was some kind of abduction of a young girl that happened. Yeah, right. But like there was, I mean, in learning about Nabokov, there's also, I mean, so he was just, there was something about, a very young girl that like was a, represented purity or innocence or something. There's something that he mm -hmm. was trying to explore throughout his entire career. Um, but in, you know, the thing that I have been realizing though, is that, you know, I, I mentioned that the culture has been shifting. It seems like that the age of consent, is just it keeps going up because some of the when you watch something from the past and you see like a 
like a college graduate dating a high school girl, you know, that immediately strikes. Mm -hmm. It's like, boy, that is so unsavory. But apparently that would fly in the 90s, you know. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. But like speaking of young girls and consent, I'm I and let's just like take a step sideways. Did what did you think of the Christine Blasey Ford hearings, especially in light of you know the I think the introduction I was reading from your story um your body is not a lemon which describes mm-hmm. the rape of a very young girl by her cousin. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think watching the Christine Blasey Ford hearings, it was such a important time. Her testimony was so powerful to me. Um, it just felt so intense to watch her kind of lay that out and knowing that it probably wasn't going to go in her favor. I just... But did you think that from the start? Because I was, I guess I'm a sucker because I, I did a little bit. I just, I, there's, I, I thought there's no way, there's no way she was just so, so lucid and clear. And I don't know how anyone could. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I agree with you. I mean, she was so lucid, so clear. I think she, I mean, I believed her. I think so many people believed her, but knowing that we're still not in a place as a society that's going to just believe women in that way. So I watched it and, you know, as a woman with my own experiences of maybe not being believed or, you know, I'm carrying that into watching her and just cringing um, and hoping that it's going to work out, but kind of knowing that there's a big likelihood that it, that it wasn't. So yeah, it was, it was, interesting. And I think it, it started a lot of good conversations. Um, I teach online classes uh, for a virtual learning university. And, you know, I think it sparked some good discussions and some good discussions around consent and just gender. And, and so in that way, I just am grateful that she was brave enough to kind of do that. And, you know, heartbroken that it didn't ultimately, um, go in her favor, but I don't know. I feel hopeful that we're moving in the right direction. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. (laughs) I don't know. You wrote an essay and I'm actually kind of shocked that it didn't reemerge during that time period. So I think it was about a year ago and it's, uh, Mm -hmm. why we must believe women. Um, Yeah. But, I mean, basically, in that essay, you're spelling out, you know, the, the the ridiculousness that ends up, you know, like the short shorts in a in a in a jury trial. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit. So in that essay, you write about con- consent. Uh, your aunt. Yeah. She she accuses her husband of, of rape. And Mm -hmm. that's a big deal. Yeah, it was the first case of um, spousal rape in Fresno County. Um, So at the time, it was really unheard of. You know, the two words together just didn't seem to sync up for a lot of people. 
you know, you can't be raped by your husband is kind of the response I think she got. And, you know, ultimately she didn't get any justice from that, but I think it was, it was really fascinating to, to think about, you know, that those two things being married and being raped within a marriage were just unbelievable for people at the time. And so like it, that's the thing in, in trying to discuss <laughs> the idea of equality. So if, if a portion of society thinks women are less than, and therefore I mean, it's just, it's such a strange conversation to have to people that, like I said, the culture is shifting, but for some people it's, mm-hmm. it's not. And so that's making them even more, uh, consult, uh, you know, they're just really arming themselves for, you know, holding on to this, this kind of, uh, patriarchal way that worked for a time. I mean, yeah, it, for right. them. Well, yeah. Yeah, and Donald Trump saying, you know, it's a scary time for boys kind of, I think, sums that up pretty well, where that is sort of the feeling on the the other side, is that all of this is just amounting to kind of a scary time for boys, which is ridiculous, of course. (laughs) You know, the the actions can't change. This is what boys are. So it's scary because look what can happen to them. You could ruin their whole life. You could ruin... I mean, Mm -hmm. that... that... (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that was the really strangeness of, of hearing... You know, these senators saying they're going to ruin this judge's whole life with this one thing. And it's like, are you kidding? Right. You know, what? what yeah. A... <laughs> but uh, you mentioned Fresno County. Let's talk about I, I know place is important to you as as a writer. And uh, yeah. your body's not a lemon also takes place in in this in the it's is it called the central valley that you write about um it is yeah central valley of california right in the middle and so everyone drives through it but you know what what (laughs) (laughs) what is it what you know how do you define it and you know what is its essence yeah i mean that's a great question because i think having grown up um there it's certainly a place that um could be so many different things to so many different people, depending on where you were, what your, you know, socioeconomic status is. Um, It's definitely an agricultural area. I mean, it provides so much of the world's produce and food. And so I think it can be dubbed kind of like a cow town, a farming town, but it's a huge city. Fresno itself is the fifth largest city in California. So there's many different experiences one might have growing up there. There's a lot of old money there. There's an extreme amount of poverty. Um, So the dichotomies between it, I I think the Atlantic did a series, actually a journalistic series about it, which was really interesting. Um, But the essence of the central Valley to me, I mean, and more, most of what I write about are in these more, kind of rural farming community areas that are more conservative and 
there's sort of this spiritual connection to the land because that's how they survive. That's how they make their money is through, you know, farming and agriculture. And so for some reason, um, you know, growing up, I was raised by my grandparents um, and my grandfather was a raisin farmer and started the ag program at Fresno State. And so really entrenched in that world, you know, judged livestock, was in future farmers, all this stuff. And as a child growing up, I was not interested in that world at all. He tried to get me interested and I, I just kind of wasn't. And as an adult, for some reason, it really, I think moving away, um, I don't know, I just felt that landscape and that, um, that world really come back to me in my work. And it's really been sort of the place in which all my work takes place almost. And so I, yeah, I am intrigued by it. I'm just, my eye is really drawn to the, the landscape of the valley. And I don't know, in some ways it, it's just, it does captivate me. Although, you know, as a teenager, I hated it and I found it very boring and <laughs> not at all interesting. So you call it, a, I mean, it's called the Central Valley, but mm-hmm. passing through, it feels like more f- really flat yes it feels very flat you're right <laughs> and it's hot also is the thing like it gets pretty hot well it gets so hot the funny thing is is that um on a lot of days in the valley you can't see the mountains surrounding it so it does look like it just stretches flat into nothing forever but actually it's surrounded by these beautiful mountains that on a clear day you can see, but the air quality in the Valley is not great. The haze kind of settles over it and forms a blanket and you can't really see those mountain ranges. But if you, if you happen to drive through on a nice day, you might be able to see them and you might feel more that you're in a Valley, but yeah, it's very flat. It's very expansive. The community itself is, you know, the downtown has really never, I don't know, taken off. It's sort of just built out. It's a real sprawl. Um, and there's a lot being done now to revitalize the downtown. But um, it's definitely, the downtown is not like a, the hub of the city yet, um, unfortunately. I think it has a lot of potential, but it's not quite there. And so it is it ever going to become like the next, Portland or the next Austin Fresno? (laughs) Well, I don't know. I mean, I think there are some people here that would like it to, to do that. Um, They've talked about the high speed rail going from, you know, LA to San Francisco. And if that happened, I think it would change Fresno just because we'd be right in the middle of that. And um, we might become more of an attraction, but right now it's suburban. How how far from San Francisco is Fresno? It's about three hours um, south of San Francisco. So I lived in the foothills of the Sierras for a little bit, and it seemed like it was it was like a, maybe an hour and a half or maybe two hours from San Francisco, and people would commute in. Mm-hmm. But it seems like oh, maybe okay. three hours would be a little like. <laughs> With California, yeah. you never know, though. I mean, what what is the limit of how long right. a commute can be? <laughs> to I have... would not want to do that commute, but 
Um, maybe somebody does. Maybe. Or what about L.A., the other direction? How far is it from Fresno? Yeah. I feel like that's about three and a half to four hours away. We're just kind of right in the middle of those two. Yeah. Seems like California's kind of had a rough go the past. Yeah, with the fires and really tragic. Yeah. Well, so I always ask about writers' practice, but I'm—I'll get there. I'm—I'm—I'm more curious about your reading practice, especially as a mother. How has your reading changed since since you have kids in your life? Yeah, good question. Um, well, I I was concerned before I had my my daughter uh, four years ago that I wouldn't be able to read as much. I wouldn't be able to write as much. And those are those things are true in some ways, but I didn't realize how much time I would have just kind of sitting down, you know, nursing. And I started reading more than ever right after she was born. I was really just tearing through books during those first few months. And it really sustained me because I felt like, you know, there were definitely times I couldn't be writing Um, but if I could be reading, that felt uh, like a huge part of that practice. So I, yeah, I think my reading life has kind of, it ebbs and flows, but I, I definitely am still consuming quite a bit of, of books, um, you know, after having children and I'm a big proponent of an early bedtime because if not, I would never get anything done. So <laughs> both both children are lights out by seven in this house. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ride that as long as I can. It seemed like I used to, like nap time was this elusive thing that maybe something like I could right. maybe accomplish something during <laughs> nap time, but it never, I don't know. <laughs> How many kids do you have? I have three. Okay, three. And their ages are wildly des- disparate. Uh, my daughter is is fourteen. She might be fifteen. I don't think she's fifteen, but that seems <laughs> awful. Who knows? You lose <laughs> yeah, I have a a fourteen year old daughter, an eleven year old son, and then a Finn just turned five. So yeah. <laughs> So I have all oh, the. You have a, do you have a child named Finn? Yeah. Oh, my son's name is Finn. Yeah. It's funny how people do that. We all kind of. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great name. I love it. I love it too. I I kind of knew that it was getting popular, but I didn't care. I went for it anyway. Yeah. Well, so in terms of writing, you have these books that are coming up, but they they're kind of a little bit in the future, according to your bio. Mm-hmm. So Godshot 2020 and Cowboys and Angels 2021. Is that just a product of the publishing world or are those, are you still working on those? Yeah. Well, right now, so I, Godshot will hopefully come out in January of 2020. So about a year from now, and I'm currently in the editing process with uh, my editor and and kind of working through some drafts with him and that should, that process should wrap up in the spring and then 
I think there's, you know, there's just a lot of time it takes to kind of generate publicity and have the galleys. Everything takes a long time. I think that's one thing that's true in all of publishing, even with, you know, short stories. I feel like you can sell a short story and then it comes out like six months to a year later, unless it's, you know, online or something and then it comes out sooner. But so, yeah, it does feel like kind of a long ways away, but they're coming slowly but surely. Are you able to talk about Godshot a little bit? Yeah. What would you like to know? Is it in the same vein as some of the, the stories that are out there by you? Yeah, actually, um, what you read in in the start of this conversation from Your Body is Not a Lemon, that story was sort of a starting ground for the novel. Um, and so there are some similarities, you know, it's, it grew out of that story and it's, it's pretty different now, but there's some baseline similarities. So it's about this young girl in this um, rural farming community during this intense drought. And um, she's abandoned by her mother. So the central kind of action is that, you know, in the beginning is that her mother takes off and um, she's sort of left to fend for herself in this really um, kind of devastating time in the town where they're kind of involved in this cult-like religion that's got this big plan to bring the rain to the town, to restore the town to, you know, what it used to be. Um, and that's kind of where it starts. But yeah, there's some some thematic similarities to that piece that you read. In in the, that story, Your Body's Not a Lemon, there's the implication that there's some kind of Amish-like religious community. Is it? Are there religious communities in the Central Valley like that? I haven't personally experienced one to the extent that I write about in my fiction. Um, a lot of that is really imagined. That's not the religion that I grew up with. But I'm sure that there are. I don't know if they're, you know, doing such extreme things out there, but I'm just curious, I think, as a writer in these more isolated spaces where, you know, there's not very many people and there's sort of maybe one way of thinking and and the influence of like sort of this godlike figure at the head of the town. That really intrigues me. Um, and so I think that's and, and, you know, I have been fascinated by cults and I always curious to know how those things transpire. You know, I think people read about cults and you just think, well, how could those people have gone along with that? And, and that's kind of a question of the book itself in my novel is how are these people going along with this? Um, and kind of hopefully answering that question because I think it's that people do go along with some crazy things as we see in history. Um, and the question is always, you know, how, how did that happen? So that's kind of what I'm trying to investigate, I guess, in this book in a way. Yeah. Well, I mean, so it's, it's great when someone says, Hey, I have all the answers. Just follow me. Right. Yeah. It's really attractive. I think that is attractive about religion. Um, 
is, is that you want to feel connected to this greater answer. It brings a sense of purpose. It brings a sense of, I don't know, you know, certainty where in life there's not a lot of certainty. So um, I see why a lot of religions are really attractive in that way. In the Central Valley, is there irrigation or is it all just it, all those crops are watered by Mother Nature? Oh, no, there's there's really complex irrigation systems and and all of that. Um, in the confines of my novel with this small community, um, I was more focused on Mother Nature and the rain being sort of the central um, necessity for them. But that's not really um, how it works. Okay. And the, what's the difference between... Although some... rain helps. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I remember, I think growing up with my grandfather, he was really attuned to the weather. It was always a real obsession of his to know if it was going to freeze. Because, you know, if there's a frost, that really matters. If there's not enough rain, that really makes a difficult season. And and just watching him sort of feel this really emotional tie to the amount of rain we were going to get that year, I think that really stuck with me. And that is definitely present in the book. And and kind of bringing this spiritual um, happenstance to it, you know, like if we get rain, we're blessed. And if we don't get rain, we're not blessed. And and that was intriguing to me, too. And, and that's definitely in the novel. Are there any environmental? Because, um, I mean, so that's the other, with California, you know, what impact is is climate change having on the state's fire season? Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot. I think that's another thing is, is that people that deny that there's a climate change happening, it's kind of hard to understand how they can deny that. Um, with what we're seeing, but certainly they do. And, and in my book, um, there's sort of this moment where they are driving and they see that someone has spray painted on a sign um, that it's global warming. You know, I think the sign says like bring water to peaches and someone writes over it, it's global warming fools. And the daughter asks, you know, what's global warming? And the mom kind of shrugs her off. Um, because they're just not, they're not really willing to entertain something like that. Um, and and so I guess I played with that a bit too, sort of the denial of science in a way. Yeah, I wonder, as you said that, I wonder if there is almost like a, a unwillingness to take ownership in our, in our actions. Mm -hmm. collectively yeah I think it's so it's so interesting because I I do think about whenever I'm in the Central Valley it's hard not to think about water as this commodity uh, that I don't think of water in the same way as I'm somewhere else and and driving through the town and seeing the car washes going and these cars lined up like just driving through and all this water just being spilled over these cars to me feels wrong. It feels strange to see the water being used in that way or or I just feel a different consciousness around it, even taking a shower 
when I'm there, like I hear this clock ticking in the background and I just think of, you know, I think a lot of people that live here might not even realize that we're in a tremendous drought or, you know, I don't know. Um, sometimes the priorities seem not quite right and not to say I'm a perfect, you know, eco citizen because I'm not, but you can't help but feel this certain way seeing all those cars going through this, the car wash when you know the situation, you know? Well, I think some of those car washes uh, that you do drive through, they reuse the water over and over again. And so I've heard stories. Oh, that's good. They do? Maybe that those are actually ecological and that it's more, it's hard. It doesn't, I I hear that it's it's more wasteful to just do it in your driveway, but oh, okay, I I could be well, mistaken. Maybe, okay, I'm, I'm, that feels really good then. That makes me happy <laughs> to think that it's just being reused. Now I'm gonna go get my car washed. <laughs> but so I'm curious, like coming from Portland, that's a much different. Like water is just everywhere all the time. Yeah. Right. Uh, did were you always planning on moving back to? to California or is this um, something that you've decided because that you, you won that award? Um, it, it's not to do with the award necessarily. Um, I'm kind of embarking on a nonfiction project that takes place in Fresno and is in part about the Valley and about Fresno. And I really wanted to be in that area for the writing of that. Um, I don't, know that living here is a permanent I mean I don't think it's a permanent um, place for me but it's I feel like for the writing of this book it is important so yeah it's a stark difference coming from Portland back here um, in more ways than one but I hope artistically it'll be um, it'll be good for the nonfiction project and then I also saw your acceptance video on on YouTube. It seemed like it was really intentional choices with what you were doing there. Well, it's funny because it wasn't exactly that intentional. When I set out to – so I, I found out I received the award days before I had my son. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, everything sort of just happened at the same time. Um, which was really cool, but also it was intense to have this newborn and try to make this video for um, the foundation. And I wanted to participate in every way that I could because I felt so grateful for this award. And um, But making the video with the two kids at home alone was a little challenging. I, every time I would almost have gotten to the end of my spiel, someone would start crying or someone needed to like be in my lap. Um, and it got to the point, it was also like very hot when I was trying to do this out, you know, our house had no air conditioning. I probably tried to make that video 20 times. I'm not even kidding. And finally I just gave up and I was like, I'm just going to hold this baby and nurse him. And my daughter's just going to be next to me because that's where she wants to be. And I'm going to get through it. And I had to send it in. So it's not the way I set out to do it necessarily. But 
Um, sure. I mean, I think in the end, I felt okay with it. I thought it was completely intentional that you were, because there. I also read something where you were at some kind of uh, residency of some kind, and you were pregnant uh-huh. there, and, and somebody said to you, oh, this yeah. is going to set you back five years. Yes, yeah. And this is your response. I, You're like, no, yeah. I'm just going to plow on through. Here I go. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right, though, because in the end, I did send that video. Obviously, I could have tried to do it not that way. Um, and in the end, I was okay with it because I thought, this is real life. This is the way my life is right now. I am doing all these things at one time. And there's not a lot of compartmentalizing them. And maybe that's okay. And and in the end, yeah, I did kind of like that it showed um, another way to have a writing life that's not, you know, that's not without children. I mean, I have children, so they're around a lot. And, and I liked that they ended up in the video. But yes, the, at the residency that did happen, and I, I'm happy that this woman said that because I think it really motivated me to, to just find ways to continue, as you said, you know, plowing through, um, and get things done all at once. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think whenever I see other women writers kind of making their art and, and living these artistic lives with children, it's so inspiring to me. And so, um, I like that visibility and the honesty really that, you know, that it looks this way sometimes. So. Well, so then you were talking about 7 PM bedtime. Does that mean that you're, Mm -hmm. you're a night writer? Have you always written at night? Well, before I had children, I just wrote whenever I wanted. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) and could you write whenever you wanted? Do you need (laughs) kind of, kind of, yeah. I don't have a lot of strict boundaries in terms of what I need to be able to produce work. Um, I, I would prefer to wake up in the morning and write probably just because I'm, I think I'm a little sharper in the morning, but now, you know, my life is that most of that is going to get done after 7 PM. And that's just the way it is right now. Um, once my daughter got a little bit older, I would go off in the morning more often to work. And that was nice. Um, and so it, it's always changing. One thing I think having two children has really driven home for me is that these stages with them are really finite and they're always shifting. Um, so with my son, I feel a little more relaxed because I'm like, well, you're not sleeping that great, but I know by next week it'll be different because it just changes. And with my daughter, I don't think I knew that. So it was like every phase felt, you know, more stressful or it felt like it would never end or, it felt like I would never sleep again. And now I know that that's just not true and it'll be fine. Um, so in that way, having multiple children has been interesting, but you know, harder in its own way. I'm sure, you know, with three, that balancing more than one, is just has its own challenges, but. It seems like the interesting thing about multiple children is that you would think it would be twice as much, but it's not. It's, it's, it's way more with, with two. And then 
Maybe it got, yeah. <laughs> it got easier with three. But the, the first one is so intense. You, you're just so uh-huh. intense. And then by the with the second one, you're, yeah, you're just so chill. I remember the silly things that we used to do with my daughter, you know, like uh, trying to get her... F- to sleep we'd drive around until she fell asleep oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) because the car seats this magic nap producing thing yeah and then it's like with the second one is we'd lay him down and he'd cry for just a second and immediately fall asleep it's like yeah that is my same experience and I'm wondering I'm like if I just let my daughter yeah cry for two seconds was she just also gonna go to sleep and I didn't know that (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think so or like (laughs) Washing, <laughs> washing everything so thoroughly on the first one and the second oh, yeah. one. It's like, oh, yeah. Just cultivating a great microbiome, you know? He's going to be so healthy. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. It's so different. Well, that was 42 minutes. That went so fast. It did. It really did. And thank you so much for sharing it with us. Yeah, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. You've been listening to Chelsea Beaker on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Check out her website at chelseabeaker.com. Did I say that? No. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows or subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. It's currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. If compelled, click on the support link at the bottom of the homepage. Thanks so much. And I hate to be the one to break it to you, she says, but men don't get in trouble for taking just what they want.
There's no one for 